Well, today we get to look at a woman who is a woman of incredible endurance. This is a woman who knows how to persevere. This is a woman of victory. This is a woman of faith. This is a woman, and this is going to be key. This is going to be really a high a highlight, if you will, of today's story, but she is a woman of prayer and she knows the power of prayer and she knows how to use prayer as a weapon. And so this is going to be, in in my opinion, just another wonderful example, women, uh, for you to aspire to, for you to emulate, for you to be inspired, for you to be strengthened and to say, this is the bar, this is who I need to be, this is where I need to go. Because uh, what we're going to see with this particular woman today, she is well acquainted with sorrow and anguish and war. And so with that said, I'm going to take you to 1 Samuel. This is where we're going to find her. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, we read this. Now there was a certain man of Ramataim of Zophim of the mounds of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, or Yeroham, the son of Eliu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. I just want to give some clarity here. There are some people that they'll read this and they'll say, well, Elkanah, who you're going to discover today, he's the father of the prophet Samuel, okay? And his wife is Hannah. She's going to be, if you will, the hero of today's story. Well, we discover some things about the backdrop here of Elkanah. We discover that he's from the mountains of Ephraim, and therefore he is called an Ephraimite. I want to be clear, Samuel, the prophet Elkanah, they are not of the tribe of Ephraim, genealogically speaking. It's simply geographically speaking. Genealogically speaking, they're from the tribe of Levi. They're Levites. And that would make a lot of sense as you see Samuel's going to go on and wear the linen ephod. And he's called into the ministry of the Lord. He comes from a long heritage of that's what you do. You serve the Lord. And so, and one of the things you'll remember that um, the Lord did is he set it up a specific way. He didn't give Levi an inheritance in Israel as far as land goes. He scattered them. There's 48 cities total. Six of them were cities of refuge. And, and, and the 42 cities, they'd be scattered throughout, and the Levites got specific cities. And it's interesting, it divvied out between Kohath and Merari and Gershon, the three sons of Levi, and Elkanah's of the descendant of Kohath. And that's important because Kohath kind of split off. You had Moses and Aaron, and obviously Aaron's descendants, literally his physical descendants, he was from Kohath. He would split off to the high priesthood, and then the rest of Kohath would serve, and they would go and, and, and serve in the ministry, moving the holy things of the Lord when the tabernacle was moving. But it's interesting that where Kohath was placed, there is different, there's only select tribes by which Kohath would be in, these Levites, one of them is in Ephraim. And so there's a, there's a lot of backdrop here, if you will. But let's get to the main cut of the story here, verse 2. This is what we read. Elkanah had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. Now listen to this. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Right 
on the front end here, we're confronted with a stark contrast between Hannah and Penina. And this is huge because this is going to carry out throughout the entire narrative of the story. It's all going to be built upon this issue. Hannah has no children, but Penina does. And what we're going to see as we get deeper into the story, we're actually going to realize that there's more contrast here than just that. We're going to see Hannah is a woman of beautiful character. Hannah's a woman who follows the Lord. Hannah's a woman who displays faith. While Panina, not so much. And so we're going to see a lot here. And, and what we're confronted with, I want you to take this in because this is a theme. This is a narrative that carries throughout scripture. In other words, we get this contrast over and over of two women in scripture with a stark contrast between the two. I'll give you some examples. Sarah and Hagar, married to the same man, couldn't be more different. Sarah, free woman, Hagar, she's a slave. Sarah gives birth to the son, to Abraham, by promise. It was supernatural, it was miraculous. Hagar gives birth according to the flesh. And then eventually Sarah says, you know what? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. Not going to be heir with my son, namely Isaac. And so here you have these two women. And we can continue. I'll give you another example. Here you got Ruth and Orpah. Sisters-in-law, both Moabites, married Jews. Married Jewish, they married Jewish brothers. Both of them die. And it's interesting, Naomi tells them, go home. Go back to your people. Ruth says, I'm not doing it. Your people shall be my people. Your God will be my God. Orpah? She goes back to her people. She abandons ship. And it's, it's just interesting. Both Orpah, you got to think about this when you have to look at the story carefully. Both Orpah and Ruth were married to husbands who worshiped the God of Israel. They were in the faith. Ruth said, I'm not leaving the faith. Even though my husband has passed on, I will not leave the faith. But Orpah says, I'm gone. Two contrasting women. Again, another story. Esther and Vashti. The king, both wives of the king. When the king calls for Vashti, she doesn't want to come. She doesn't want to submit to him. I mean, she's a rebellious woman. Esther is the exact opposite, filled with humility, integrity, and character. Okay, this just keeps playing over and over. Taking a step further, the two mothers from 1 Kings. If you've ever read that story, where... Two mothers lived together. It was just them and their two sons, just three days apart. They were, and, and the one mother rolled over on her, her son in the middle of the night, and he killed him. And so she swaps her son for the other woman's son in the middle of the night without her knowing. And she wakes up to nurse her baby, and he's dead. And then she investigates further. Well, this isn't my son. But this woman said, oh, yes, it is. This is my son. That's your son. So it comes before Solomon. And it's, it's just a fascinating story. Solomon said, give me a story. I'm going to cut the, the child in half. We'll get a half to you and half to her. I mean, it sounds crazy. It was brilliantly wise. Because what it did is it vetted out character. Then this woman's character said, no, no, I would rather give up my son. I will let him live. Just let him live. Because she actually cared for him. Whereas the other woman said, don't let him live. Don't let him. Cut him. Go ahead. Kill him. 
do you, do you see, we're, we're getting this theme over and over again in scripture. We're getting confronted with this. Let me, two women in Proverbs 9. Both of them cry out, whoever is simple, let him come here or to come to me. They're both crying out the same thing. Yet one of them follows up by saying, stolen water is sweet. Bread eaten in secret is divine. Whereas the other one is crying out, say, forsake foolishness and you will live. Repent. Two women, two different ideas, two different characters, two different messages. Two women at the well, which, you know, Matthew 24, Yeshua is talking, he gets into the prophecy. One will be taken and another will be left. I can give you other examples. My screen's full. So I can't give you any more examples, but, uh, you know, just thinking about Revelation. Revelation, there are two women mentioned in Revelation. Central themes. One woman's clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet. Another woman is the whore of Babylon, the mother of harlots. I mean, so all throughout scripture, we're confronted with the reality of two women. I want you to take it in because that's where we're at right now. We are confronted with two very, very different women, a theme that carries through. And it's like going back to the garden for me. Where you, the tree of life was actually called a she. It's interesting. She's actually referred to a woman, if you will. The tree of life is sitting in the Garden of Eden, and right next to it is what? The tree of knowledge of good and evil. They're both in the center of the garden. And so the point here is, and this is what God is trying to communicate to us, who are you going to be? Are you going to be Ruth, or are you going to be Orpah? Right? Are you going to be Sarah? Are you going to be Hagar? Are you going to be Esther with humility and character? Are you going to be Vashti? Are you going to be Hannah? Are you going to be Panina? Who are you going to be? Well, let's take this further. I want to dig into their names and you're going to see this contrasted even more. Hannah, Hanan, which actually comes from Chen. It means grace. Chen is grace. And so you look at her name, it's absolutely beautiful. It's to be gracious. It's to have loving kindness. It's a, it's a powerful name. But then you go over to the tracks on the other side, and we got Panina. Okay? This stems from Panina is the feminine of Paninim, which is the masculine. Paninim means rubies. You go to, the, at least in the New King James, every single time it's used in the Hebrew Bible, it is translated as rubies. And for some, it means jewels, and some other translations, I think they'll even use pearls. But it's precious stones. Now, you look at this, you might say, well, Daniel, I don't really see any contrast here. There's nothing really going on here. Well, check this out. Every single time paninim is used in the Hebrew Bible, it is in contrast specifically contrasted to God's holy wisdom, to his Torah, to his righteousness every time. Let me give you some examples. We read in Job 28, 18, no mention shall be made of coral or quartz for the price of wisdom is above paninim, rubies. God's wisdom, God's righteousness greater than paninim. Let me go to Proverbs 3.15. She, meaning the Torah, his righteousness, his wisdom, is more precious than paninim. Again, and all things you may desire cannot compare with her. 
can't compare with her. Proverbs 8, 11, wisdom is better than paninim. Same thing that we just read in, in Proverbs 3, 15, but then we're going to come to a crescendo here. Something that has been a theme for us in this series, at least, as we go to the Proverbs 31 woman, and we look at Proverbs 31, 10, again, who can find a virtuous wife? Oh, for her worth is far above paninim. Unreal. So as you literally looked at this, and we're talking about Hannah here, her worth is far above Panina. I mean, this is, this is what we're looking at in this story right here. And so you can see the contrast is we don't even get through chapter, you know, verse two here, and we're seeing a lot. Now that being said, let's move on in verse three. The man went up from his city yearly, speaking of Elkanah, he went up uh, from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And I'm going to stop right there. What is Elkanah doing? What you're going to discover today is Elkanah is a righteous, God-fearing man, an amazing man. And he's going up when he's called at the appointed times during the feast. When the feast calling him, he's going up. But in here, we, we're told it's Shiloh or Shiloh. And uh, that's where the tabernacle was. That's where it was originally set up. It wasn't Jerusalem. The first place was Shiloh. You can read Joshua 18. Continuing. Also, two sons of Eli, or Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. You know, it's interesting, total side note here, but Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, though they're identified as priests and they're holding the office, if you just go to the next chapter, it's interesting, they're called B'nai Belial. B'nai Belial, you should know what that means. This is sons of Belial, sons of the devil, and they do not know the Lord. I mean, that's what the text says. They do not know him. So they're merely just holding the office, and that, that, that's another message in and of itself. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. Oh, but listen to this. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion. Menachat apain in the Hebrew. And, and, and in the Hebrew, if you were to translate it, a lot of Hebrew scholars will translate it in the following way. One portion of two faces. And some will translate it, will say one choice portion. Regardless of how you want to translate this, one thing is certain. This is a unique and special portion for her. Why? Well, the very next thing that I said is because he loved her. He loved Hannah. Now, what I'm about to tell you, I'm going to take you to the Septuagint. It's implied here in the Hebrew alone. I think we could all get there and figure it out. But the Septuagint doesn't mess around. It's more forthcoming in regard to what does it mean that he loved Hannah? This is what it means. He loved Hannah more than Panina. Okay? Well, wait, wait a second. What did we just read with all those uh, conversations in Proverbs? What did we just read? We just read this. I'll put this up here. She is more precious than Panini. More. Here you have Elkanah literally following this template that we find all over in Scripture in regard to Panini. Elkanah saying, literally, she's more precious. 
She, he is saying Hannah is more precious than Panina, literally. It's an amazing thought. But then we read this. Although the Lord had closed her womb. Now you will never appreciate what this means in a society that we live in today. A society that doesn't value marriage, a society that doesn't value family. In fact, uh, we're a society that is offering our children on the altar of inconvenience. We're not about growing our families. We're about having fashionable families. Maybe one son, one daughter, that's perfect, and, and we're done. You cannot understand and appreciate the gravity of this statement in this generation. You have to go back to the biblical context to really be able to draw, to, to understand what this means. To have children was to literally gain honor amongst your peers. It was to show people would acknowledge you as being greatly blessed. It was the most coveted thing. This is what was coveted is for you to have heritage and to have a big family. And for this statement, this tells us a lot about Elkanah and how he really feels about Hannah. See, Panina was bearing him heritage and children, yet he loves Hannah more than Panina or Paninin. He loves her more and she hasn't borne him nothing. There's no heritage. Do you understand the kind of love that Elkanah has for this woman? It is, it is the very thing that Paul talks about in Ephesians 5. It's he loves her as Christ loves the church. That's the kind of love that we see here. It is so awesome. Now we continue in verse 6. And her rival, another way to say this, her distressor or her, her adversary, her adversary, meaning Panina, also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. You know, with a co-wife like this, who needs enemies, right? Like it's not hard enough for Hannah in the historical context that this was. Like it wasn't hard enough to deal with not being able to conceive. One of the hardest things, even for women today, you will find one of the hardest things you will ever experience is if when you have that burning passion that you want to bear children, and you can't do what God created you to do. Do you know what that does to a woman? It breaks them. It emotionally will cast them into an abyss of total hopelessness. They feel like, what's wrong with me? Why am I broken? They feel useless, worthless. Not that it's true. It doesn't change how they feel. This is emotionally crippling. And we see that unfortunately, Hannah is suffering from this. She is in total despair and distraught over this whole thing. And on top of that, guess what's happening? If that wasn't enough, now Panina is coming in to emotionally, literally pick her apart. To destroy her, to humiliate her and scoff at her. Could you imagine, women, being in this situation? If you've ever been in this situation where Hannah was, where you're so desperate to have children and you're struggling, there was a time period maybe you're struggling, or maybe you're, maybe you're struggling right now that you're trying to do. Can you imagine? You're going through that. Now add to the fact that someone's coming in and literally dragging you through the mud, making you feel like garbage. 
This is, this is a nasty situation. And you know, I look at this and all I see is devil is in the details. You remember what I said, gals? That when you're at your lowest, when you're most vulnerable, when you're most broken, get your peripherals out, get your flags up, start looking for the adversary because he's coming to take you out. He's looking for this opportunity when you're at your weakest and he wants to come and finish the job. This is what is happening. The devil is using Panina to try to completely destroy Hannah. It's absolutely demonic. She, he, you know, the devil wants to get Hannah to a point where she becomes resentful over God. And, and think about it. When you put this in context, women that struggle that they can't conceive, you know what they see? They go out and they look at all the moms hugging their children and the great bounty that they have. And they're crushed. Why can't I do that? Lord, why can't you? And the devil is in there whispering in the ear, blame God. You can't trust in God. He's not going to help you. Look at you. You're totally barren. There's no hope. The devil comes in at the opportune time. It's absolutely demonic. And you see it right here in this story. And you want to add to this. Look at the next verse. This only adds to it. So it was year by year. When she, meaning Hannah, went up to the house of the Lord, that Panina provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. This was not, you know, Panina having a bad day and coming off the rails. Oh, I'm sorry, Hannah, I shouldn't have said what I said. I really feel bad. It is year after year she is railing on her at her weakest moment. I mean, emotionally, women, how many of you think you could go through that? I mean, just having to deal with that. And of course, it's family. You know, she's kind of in a situation, I'm kind of stuck. And she's just tearing apart, literally humiliating her, tormenting her. It's absolutely demonic. And to help you further appreciate how Hannah really felt, I'm going to take you to the Septuagint. It articulates this uh, beautifully. It says, because the Lord did not give her a child, despite her anguish and despite the hopelessness of her anguish, she lost heart because of this, that the Lord kept her womb closed by not giving her a child. Okay, Hannah is plummeting into the abyss of hopelessness. This is total despair. I mean, you talk about your last thread. You talk about your struggle. I mean, her saying, you know, the, the statement saying she totally is crushed in heart. It's a, a woman that struggles to lift her head up. But fortunately, Elkanah, her husband, is going to come to the rescue here. Check this out in verse 8. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? I mean, Hannah, Hannah, let's get some perspective here for a second. <laughs> let's focus on, let's look at me. It's like amazing I am. Your cup runneth over. <laughs> you don't need 10 sons. You look at this statement, and I'm being silly, so forgive me. You look at this statement, I want to be very clear because I don't want to misrepresent Elkanah or what he is doing. What you need to understand is Elkanah has come in to strengthen his wife. He doesn't want her to sorrow. 
And what he is saying, he's like, I love you more than 10 sons could. Do you understand the love that I have for you? And this is his heart. This is how much he loves her. But as admirable as this is, unfortunately, this isn't going to take her out of the abyss. This doesn't, she is emotionally inconsolable. So what does Hannah do? Well, we go to verse nine and this is what we read. So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord, verse 10. And she was in bitterness of soul. Oh, and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. So does Hannah respond? Now keep in mind, year after year after year, she has been drugged through the depths of despair, all the while having an accuser stand opposite of her and humiliate and ridicule her. I mean, this, emotionally, there's nothing left here. Now, does she just turn her back on God? Does she blame God? Does she say, I'm throwing my arms up, I'm done. I've been, I've been so faithful in my, in my walk, but nothing has changed. So I'm just not going to do it. No, instead of that, instead of doing what the devil wanted her to do, she goes to prayer. She gets on her knees and she casts all her cares upon the Lord. You think about the faith that this woman has to be able to do it in the context that we see. And why, you know, why as why is she casting her cares upon the Lord? She actually believes that he cares for her. See, do you know why many of us don't pray? Do you want to know why many of us don't go to the Lord when we need him the most? Because you don't believe he cares. Because you're listening to the lies that the enemy tells you he doesn't care. And all you're going to do is just spit out a bunch of words that he's not going to listen to and nothing's going to change in your life. She rejected every one of those lies. And she went and cast her cares upon the Lord knowing he is good. So she has faith that moves mountains. She has true faith that moves mountains. This woman is a powerhouse. I mean, she really is. She is a powerhouse moving in faith. She knows where to go get the healing balm. I think of Psalm 109. I love this psalm. To the chief musician of Psalm of David, do not keep silent, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. In other words, David saying, my enemies have come to destroy me with their mouth. And this is exactly what Hannah has been dealing with for years. Her enemy, her adversary destroying her with her mouth. In verse 3, they have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers. What does David do? But I give myself to prayer. They're ripping me to shreds. I'm in total despair. Fear on every side. What do I do? David goes to prayer. Hannah does what David does. This is what the righteous do. And we, I mean, obviously, I could give you other examples. But we keep saying the same template. When people get to that point where they're totally broken and it feels totally hopeless, where are you taking this? There's only one place the righteous have taught us. 
You take it to the one who actually cares. And you call upon him and you remind him, I know you're the God who loves me. I know you're the God who died for me. And through you, I can have life. So I cast my cares upon you. Hear me, remember me, know what I'm going through. Help me. All the righteous do this. It's a common thread. It's a common theme throughout the whole thing. And you know, I, think about, I think about what David does, what Hannah does. They follow Yeshua's teachings. Pray and do not lose heart. The fact that Hannah has gone to prayer shows she hasn't severed her face. She hasn't lost heart. She's still there. This is amazing. I'm continuing on verse 11. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, Yahweh's have a oat. You know what's interesting about this? She is the first person in the Bible to invoke this name. This title, Yahweh's have a oat, first person. If you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, she knows what she's praying for, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, oh, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall come upon his head. In other words, he'll be a Nazarite. Pay attention to this prayer. Look at it carefully. Because this is interesting to me. Because Hannah never prayed this prayer ever before in her life. This is the first time she has prayed this. Isn't that fascinating? Now let's be honest. We know Hannah is a righteous woman of God. And we know this insanity has been going on for years where she has this void and despair and broken and been persecuted and humiliated. This has been going on for years. How many times do you think she lifted up a prayer to God and said, please, oh God, open my wound? Hundreds? Thousands? I venture it's definitely in the hundreds, if not in the thousands. This is a woman that this is all she could consumed her. But now all of a sudden, now all of a sudden, her prayer changed. Why? Why is she now praying, not the prayer of open my womb so I conceive and give me children as I look at everyone else in this co-wife that's ridiculing me so that I can have children as well. I'm being ostracized. She's not praying that prayer. She is now praying a prayer, Lord, give me conception so I can give him to you. Completely radically different prayer. How did she get to there? This is, this is what's amazing. The pain, the suffering, the sorrow, the humility. God was working in all of it. He was working in all of it. He was in it. You know, you think of Job. God was working in his suffering. He was there. Even though Satan, working through his wife, said, curse God and die, because that's what Satan's trying to do. He's trying to get us to walk away from the Lord. Just curse God and die. I think of Joseph. God was in. He was in the pain. He was in the suffering. He was a part of it. It was his plan. As Joseph gets betrayed by his own brothers, literally cast in a pit, that that is enough, then he gets sold to Ishmaelites, to foreigners, who, oh, oh joy, you're going to bring me into Egypt only to find out I'm going to get thrown into prison wrongfully for years. And through all of that, it was all pain and suffering, total despair, and God was in it. 
this is what concerns me. As we look and we see what's going on with Hannah, as we can look at many other examples, whether it's Job or Joseph, that when you experience trials and tribulations, you do not see him in the pain and in the suffering. And I'm going to tell you, if you don't find him, you won't make it. Hannah found him. She found the Lord in the pain and the suffering because of her perseverance, her endurance. And now, because of all that pain and suffering, the Lord brought her to a place to actually lay up a prayer that's according to his will. If we pray anything according to his will, we know that he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, then we know that we have the petitions we have asked of him. This is one of the ways that we pray successfully. It's to pray his will. His will was to bring Samuel into the world, to raise him up as a prophet, and his will was to do it through Hannah. But it didn't happen. It's not going to happen until she prays his will. Unbelievable. This is, incre- this is an incredible story of to see God in all the pain and all the suffering, and she found him because she stayed diligent. And she went to prayer and she prayed his will. Something that I'll say it again, something that is extremely uncomfortable for Christians to do. Nobody wants to pray the will of God. That's too scary. I mean, we want to pray our will. Lord, you listen to me. Listen to my needs and and what I got to do. I'll know, you will know, when you're praying with power is when you pray his will. And you say, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. And that's what it's about. It's called faith. People don't realize how they don't pray in faith. If you're praying in faith, you're praying his will. You open that up and you're willing to sacrifice as Hannah is willing to give up her firstborn to follow his will. And this was forever. She doesn't get him back later on. This is literally, after not having children, she's really to dedicate her firstborn child to the Lord. That is an amazing, that is an, this is an amazing woman of God. Unbelievable. Verse 12. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. Yeah, she looks a little tipsy, a little, looks a little nuts. She's, she's not vocalizing her prayer. Now I want to stop here because this is going to answer, you know, I get... I've gotten a really good question over the years many times. And the question is, is Daniel, does the Lord receive, does he hear prayers that are not audible? Prayers that I've only said in my head, in my heart. Emphatically, the answer is yes. Now, try to take that in for a second. Because I had to wrap my head around the fact that prayer is so powerful That even when it's not spoken, that if I humble my heart and I'm crying out to God in my heart, I connect literally with God. How can you just wrap your head around that? That's how powerful prayer is, where you can meet him not saying a word. You can meet with him. He can hear you and bless you as it's going to happen here. And she didn't speak audibly a word. That is unbelievable. And yet, believe it. 
I love what Luther says. He, he says this. He says, when thou prayest, rather let thy heart be without words than thy words without heart. What a pr- profound statement. I mean, biblically, you can support that reality. It is so much better to pray from your heart, even when you don't audibly. And it's good to, it's good to pray verbally. But let me tell you where it all begins and ends. It's at your heart. It's at your heart. If your heart is moving in humility and faith, man, that's success. That's power. That's where you want to be in prayer. All right, verse 14, let's move on. So Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered and said, no, my Lord, I'm a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. The only thing she's intoxicated with is grief, sorrow, pain. That's the only thing. And it's interesting because we know the Lord is near to those who have a humble heart and he saves such as have a contrite spirit. Do you want the presence of God to come to you? to invite him in, to let him in as Yeshua stands at the door and knocks. It's to be in a state of total brokenness where Hannah is. And yet, not turning her back on the Lord, but running to him. Total brokenness, you know, his strength is made perfect in our weakness. And you fight the weakness all the time. We don't want that. But that's where the power of the Holy Spirit will move. The power of the Spirit of God moves in these moments when you are so broken that you can't even lift your head, let alone your hands. And she goes on to clarify, do not consider your maidservant, and I'm going to put this up in the Hebrew, a bat all, a daughter of Satan. In other words, she is confirming, Eli, if I had shown up here intoxicated and came to the temple intoxicated, I would be a devilish woman, a son of the, a daughter of the devil. That's what I would be. See, you know, Ecclesiastes talks about this. Boy, when you go to the temple, you better walk prudently. And in Leviticus 10 says that if the priest want to tip a few back and they want to go in and do some serving, you know what happens? They're to be put to death. They're to be killed. See, because by those who draw near to him, he must be regarded as holy. And Eli's looking at this situation going, whoa, wicked woman, get yourself together, right? But fortunately, she's not. And so she explains this situation. Verse 17, then Eli answered and said, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have asked him. And she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went away uh, and ate and her face was no longer sad. Year after year, she's in pain, affliction, and sorrow with insults being hurled at her, being humiliated and persecuted. Year after year, all of a sudden after this prayer, where she's praying the will of God, she comes up and she's totally healed of all sorrow. That weight has been totally lifted. She knows This is what's amazing. And that's why when you read 1 John, if we pray anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, we know that we have the petitions we have asked of him. 
In other words, there's a confidence that comes from these warriors that use prayer as a weapon to conquer defeat, to conquer pain, to conquer depression, to conquer sorrow. And this woman knows how to wield that sword. And she has successfully been broken before the Lord. And now the Lord has heard her. She is light as a feather. She is no longer sad. This is the power of prayer. I think of Jeremiah 33, and it says, Call to me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Hannah is about to experience the power of God because she went to him, and she's about to experience something she has never known. And this is across the board. This is a reality. God will get you to experience things that you've never experienced, to get you to experience things that are impossible for you or anyone else in your life to perform, to help you. There's a lot of people in the world right now that are being given death sentences. Most of these are coming from doctors telling them there's nothing we can do. There's no hope. That's what they're saying. There's no hope. But for a radical believer, they're going, there's always hope. There's always hope. I don't care what you say, doctor, I don't care how many people you've seen died of whatever ailment that I have, and it's the same thing. I don't care because Yeshua's on the throne. He hasn't lost his power. If he healed when he was in his earthly ministry, he heals now. But how do we get to him? How do we get Yeshua's attention? We have to pay attention to stories like this because this is how it's done. And what's the first thing? If my people who are called by my name will humble. And this woman is broken. This woman is humbled. And she will not let go of her faith. She keeps going back to the Lord. It's called faith. She doesn't turn her back. She's not angry at him. This is what it looks like to be a woman of God. An Ashet Chayil. A woman of valor. Verse 19. Then they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And you know what that means. We talked about this before. When God remembers you, watch out. Deliverance is coming. Salvation is coming. Healing is coming. Forgiveness is coming. Restoration is coming. And it's coming to Hannah. She's going to have victory because she sought him and she found him in her pain. She found the Lord in her pain. This is how you get victory, ladies. You endure. You pray. You do not lose heart. You don't. You get your shield of faith so big that it covers your entire body that not an arrow of a lie gets to you anywhere. On a side note, you know, Hannah, because of what she did, and she did, she's going to give Samuel, as you're going to see, she's going to give Samuel up and He's going to go minister at the tabernacle. He's going to come under Eli's uh, mentorship. She's going to go on to have five more kids because God blessed her for what she has done. For her faithfulness, she now has a quiver full. That is awesome. Now, dropping down to verse 27, Hannah and Elkanah, they're, they're going to bring Samuel up to the tabernacle to deliver him to Eli the priest. And, you know, Hannah's totally... Her mind is blown, excited. She's excited to tell Eli, I'm the woman. Do you remember me? You know, the drunk, crazy woman that you thought I was crazy? I was here. I was here. Do you remember? And she's going to tell him what she prayed for. And it came to pass 
or for this child, I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, and I have asked of him. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there. And the very next thing we read is this. Hannah is again going to lift up prayer. I mean, this is a woman of prayer. This is all she knows how to do. Pray and do not lose heart. Pray without ceasing. She, she, this is the woman. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Now, there's a prophetic overture here of overlay as you look at this. She can smile at her enemies for one reason. Because she samach, she rejoices in Yeshua. Literally in Yeshua. I mean, I'm going to tell you, it's interesting. Yeshua in, in John chapter 14, he says, if you loved me, you would rejoice. It's, it's amazing. If you loved me, you would rejoice. And so here, literally, she says, I can smile at your enemies because I rejoice in Yeshua. I mean, he's in the pages He's right here. And that is the truth for us today. It was the truth for her back then. It is the truth for us right now. I think of Psalm 511. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let them also who love your name be joyful in you. And then we're going to jump ahead here in her prayer. Talk no more. So very proudly, let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Now that's a shot across the bow to Panina, but, but there, there's a greater template here. This is for all wicked. I mean, this is very prophetic. This is a prophecy to every generation, to all those that are going to choose the, to be a Panina, right? Don't be arrogant. Don't talk proudly. Don't speak against dignitaries. You know, don't become dreamers and scoffers and mockers. In verse 5, those who are full have hired themselves out for bread and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven. And that's, the, the, you see what happens? See, every mountain is going to be brought low. Every valley will be exalted. Do you know what that prophecy in Isaiah 40 is talking about? It's talking about exactly what Hannah's talking about. It's talking about what Yeshua talks about over and over again in the Gospel of Luke, even uh, as an addendum to the uh, Beatitudes in chapter 6, that you, you can see that. Or that's what he, those who are rich in this age, they're going to be brought low and they're going to be destitute in the age to come. Luke 16, you got the parable of Lazarus, right? The beggar. And then you have the rich man. Lazarus is exalted. The rich man is taken to the depths of hell. And so what she's saying here is it's, I mean, this is woven throughout all scripture. It just keeps being reiterated so that we pick up on it and we go, okay, this is actually going to happen. We need to choose wisely. We need to humble ourselves in this age so that the Lord will lift us up. Amen. And so, and then it goes on and says this, and she who has many children has become feeble. Another shot across the bow at Panina. See, she now smiles. She now has victory despite all the pain, all the suffering that she had to endure, but because she would not let go of the Lord, because she did not give up on him, she was rewarded. And that's a lesson. Amen? 